I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a kind of cultural phenomenon going on that involves these Stanley tumblers. There's a trunk full of them right here. These are actually the police discovering stolen tumblers in a trunk of a car. So here's the evidence right here. It looks like somebody's on their way to the goodwill, but somebody thought it was worth stealing these kinds of things. And the reason is because they're kind of a big deal right now, especially this new collection, the Stanley Starbucks Winter Pink collection that came out not too long ago at Target. And people, before it came out on Target, the night before, spent the night outside in line so that they can be in line to get the Stanley Starbucks Winter Pink collection tumblers. And when the store opened, just on social media, videos of people fighting, shouting at each other, trying to get their tumbler. And in some stores, the shelves were empty in two minutes. It happened because these TikTok influencers and other social media influencers got online and started you know, having catchy videos of how cool they were, the colors and all that kind of stuff. And it just took off. Some of them now you can resell for $400. So literally this person has, there's 65, 65 tumblers in here. So thousands of dollars worth of merchandise right here. You know, it's one of those things where I can tell some of you right now are kind of mad at me because you think I'm criticizing you for your, your new purchase that you're excited about. No, I get it. You know, it's hard. Far be it from me to resist a cultural win. <laughs> I don't have anything figured out when it comes to that. We're all flowing downstream. But when you think about it, this is sort of proof of that social scientist theory of what's called mimetic desire. Mimetic, something imitated. Mimetic desire is, the key idea is this, is that we don't inherently desire, want things that we don't know what's valuable, I should say, but we learn from watching what's valuable to other people. When we see them want something, when we see them desire something, that shows us that's important and we imitate that desire. We imitate wanting what we see people wanting. And it's just one of those things where it just becomes a question. Is your pursuits in life, the things that you really want, the things that you value having and sacrifice for, are some of those things sort of a psychological trick you're falling for? Is something happening unconsciously where you're desiring what you see everybody else desiring, but otherwise it, it wouldn't have value to you? I wonder, is it possible that you're actually missing something that is really valuable because of mimetic desire, because of imitating the wants of the people you see what they want, you're wanting that too, and you're missing something that is incredibly, truly the valuable thing. It's sort of a Stanley Tumblr phenomenon, but this is about your life, and you're falling for it, and you don't even realize it. It's a question we all should ask, and it's a question we should ask, especially as we look at this encounter Jesus has in Luke chapter 6, this is where we are in our sermon series on Luke. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus has an encounter with a group called the Pharisees. We'll hear about them a lot, because the Pharisees were the religious leaders in Jesus' day. And we're going to look at how Jesus' encounter with the Pharisees tells us something about ourselves and tells us something about Jesus, well, that could absolutely change your life. Let's look at it here, starting in verse 1 of chapter 6. One Sabbath, 
Jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands and eat the kernels. It might be kind of like what we do where we take a peanut shell and you know, crack it open and eat the, eat the peanut. They're kind of doing that with kernels. And some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Now that's a question because they're wanting to catch Jesus and his disciples breaking the law and the Sabbath laws if it could get out of hand and it was actually punishable by death in some situations. Jesus doesn't get into the weeds at all talking about whether or not they were working, whether or not they were breaking the Sabbath, whether or not this was work. He doesn't go there. Instead, what Jesus does in the verses that follow is that he talks about a story in the Old Testament. He talks about King David. Well, before he was king, he was still God's chosen, anointed, rightful king over Israel, but he wasn't king yet. The king that God had rejected, Saul, was still king, and he was actually trying to kill David. So David and his men were on the run from Saul, and there was a time when they were really hungry, there was no food, the only food available was the bread inside the house of God that was meant only for the priest to eat. They go there, they go in the house of God, ask the priest to give them bread, the bread that they're not allowed to eat according to Sabbath laws, and they eat it. And Jesus' point is that because of who David is, he is the rightful king of Israel, he is God's chosen, he is God's anointed, what his mission was more important than the Sabbath laws. And then Jesus is making the point, how much more Jesus, how much more would that be true of me? It's one of those things where Luke is not interested in, in whether or not we should, what we do is violating or what should have the Sabbath, what's work, what's not work, what's Sabbath, what's not Sabbath. That's not what Luke is interested in here. What Luke is interested, what he wants you and me to wrestle with here is who did Jesus think he was? Because see, violating the rules of the Sabbath, we think, well, that wouldn't be right, but we do it here in our culture. We have a presidential motorcade is able to go through the traffic lights without having to stop, doesn't have to stop at stop signs because, well, this is the president, in some sense, the most important person in the country. Jesus violating the Sabbath laws, well, if he's who he claims to be, it's not a big deal because this is who Jesus claims to be in verse five. He says, then Jesus said to them, the son of man, and that was Jesus's favorite term for himself, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, this is one of those places in Luke and in all the Gospels where, for those who have ears to hear, Jesus is claiming to be God. Not just God, but the Old Testament God. The God of the Sabbath. The God who began the Sabbath. And so Jesus is claiming to be Lord of the Sabbath, the God of the Sabbath, and then what that means, well, Luke tells it in the very next verse. He illustrates it. He says in verse six, on another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. Here's a guy in synagogue. Just picture it in a church, a small church. There's a guy there. Everybody knows his hand is shriveled, and Jesus is there today. And people know that Jesus is sort of a magnet for people who need healing. They know something's going to happen. There just is a tension in the room because it says that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law 
were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. What they're concerned about, seeing this guy that needs healing with a shriveled hand, seeing Jesus, the one who heals, is he going to work on the Sabbath? And that way we can accuse him and maybe get him killed for violating the Sabbath? And so we read in the next verse, verse eight, it says, but Jesus knew what they were thinking. So he's gonna outsmart them. He knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So it'd be like here, me saying, Jesus saying to somebody, the, the guy with the shriveled hand, come up here right in front of everybody. So it says the guy stood up, he got up and stood in front of every. so he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? Now I just wanna point out here, this word save, all the New Testament was written in the ancient Greek language. And this word that's translated directly from the Greek into English as save is the exact same word that's often translated heal. It's just context to determine which we would translate it in English as save or heal, but it's this, to heal somebody, but it's the same exact Greek word. So here's what I want you to catch always in the Bible. Salvation is healing. Salvation is restoration. Jesus' mission was restoration, not just the people he healed, but to, rest, to restore humanity, to restore the world, to restore the soul, the level of a soul, forever. That kind of a healing. That's, that's what Jesus' mission was. So it says in verse 10, he looked around at them all and then said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. Here's the thing. Jesus doesn't do anything. He just speaks. And he speaks words that don't even say be healed. He speaks words that says, well, something that would be impossible unless he was healed. Stretch out your hand. But here's what you have to catch. This is really important. This is kind of how the Bible works. It was important that this guy did what Jesus said. It was this guy doing the words of Jesus that allowed him to be completely restored. It was as he was doing what Jesus said that the words of Jesus had the power to completely restore him in his life. Jesus outsmarted the Pharisees because he doesn't work, he just speaks. So verse 11 says they're, they're ticked off, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious because they really wanted this to happen where they could accuse Jesus, and they began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus, this one another. These, these people that are in a group wanting something to happen, that's all they're paying attention to, that's all they're watching, and what's really weird is that they're watching for Jesus to violate the Sabbath law, and because they're just in this group think mindset, each of them individually absolutely miss the wonder of what just happened, what it means about who Jesus is. It's a powerful story because what Jesus does here, this completely restoring his hand, is 
Luke telling us what it means that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus' statement in verse five is kind of the key to this whole chapter, this whole story. Jesus says, the son of man, I am Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is something in the Bible that goes all the way back to the very beginning. Right back to the very start of Genesis, the seven days of Genesis, the seventh day, it says God rested from his work on the seventh day and he blessed the seventh day and he made it holy. This word Sabbath is really just coming from a Hebrew word Shabbat and it comes from the Hebrew word Sevah, which is rest. God rested and he blessed and made the seventh day holy. And when you get to the rest of the New Testament and you get to Hebrews chapter four and it says in chapter four that that, that Sabbath was actually a, an image. It's an image, the seventh day is an image of, that ultimately pointed to Jesus, that it was an image of God bringing rest, restoration to the entire creation, that God's rest, God's shalom, God's peace would fill his entire creation. And Hebrews 4 says that was always pointing to who Jesus is. It was always meant to point to what Jesus would do when he brings rest, he brings restoration back to earth. He brings heaven back to earth. Jesus being Lord of the Sabbath is Jesus saying, I am Lord of rest. I am Lord of restoration. I am Lord of shalom. I am Lord of peace. And this was a favorite theme of Jesus. This, he is Lord of the Sabbath and what that means. He is rest. He is shalom. And so other gospels have him saying stuff like in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. It's kind of one of the Bible's greatest hits. You've heard this, no doubt, if you've been around Christian circles at least for a while, where Jesus says, come to me all, all you who are weary and burdened. Doesn't that sound like our culture right now? All you who are weary and burdened, we could say stressed and anxious, all of you who are weary and burdened, just come to me and I will give you rest. I will give you restoration. I will give you shalom. I will give you peace. I am Lord of rest. I will give you rest and you will find rest for your souls. See, what Jesus is saying here is key, though, is that come to me. What, for Jesus to bring what only Jesus can bring, you have to do what only you can do. And that's come to Jesus. It's as you do what he says. It's as you come to Jesus that you experience the process of rest, restoration, Let's do a little riddle here. I'm going to describe something, and you try to guess what it is. It, it, it's something extremely valuable. It's something everyone in this room has to give. It's something that people you don't even know really want it from you. And it's something that those closest to you want as well. And it's something so valuable that God himself wants it from you. And the answer, well, somebody in the last service said love, and it kind of killed the moment because I didn't have that as my answer. And it sounds like the right answer. That wasn't my answer. The answer is attention. 
See, when you think about it, your attention is your scarcest resource. That's why we use that phrase, to pay attention. Your, your, your attention is limited. You're finite. You only have so much. Everybody kind of has the same amount. doesn't matter how rich or poor you are. Everybody kind of has the same amount of 24 hours a day attention. It's limited. And so when you give attention, you're paying attention. It's kind of a currency. It's, 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 a, it's a scarce currency, and you have to be deliberate. You have to choose, because it's limited, what you're going to pay attention to. Always. That's what life is. And that's especially true when it comes to whether or not you pay attention to God. There's an author, Ronald Rollheiser. He writes in his book, A Holy Thing, A Holy Longing, sorry. He says, for we, for every kind of reason, good and bad, and this is phrase, are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. Just think about it. We're distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. It's not that we have anything against God. It's just that we're habitually too preoccupied to have him show up on our radar screens. We're just, it's not that we're against him. It's not that we want to turn away. We don't. It's just that we're just so preoccupied that we're just sort of dis- being distracted into spiritual oblivion. I don't know if that resonates with you at all. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, it's a satire on how Satan works in the life of a Christian, how devils, de- demons work in the life of a Christian, and they're talking to one another. One senior demon is talking to lesser demons, and that's what the book is. And in it, the demons are railing against silence as the greatest threat to their cause in trying to ruin a Christian soul. That silence is the greatest danger of what they're trying to do in a, a Christian soul. They're, it says the, the, the top demon describes Satan's realm, the devil's realm, as a kingdom of noise. A kingdom of noise. And he goes on and he says, we will make the whole universe a noise in the end. We will make the whole universe a noise in the end. Might, kinda, could be, why? You and I have this noise coming at us all the time. I mean, we're just so preoccupied with alerts and messages and emails and social media and so many darn good things on TV to watch and whatever it is, we're just constantly being bombarded by a kingdom of noise. I mean, could it be? Why? You find it so hard to pay attention to God and could it be maybe why that phrase of being distracted into spiritual oblivion might be true of you, me, us? John Mark Comer in his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, really good book, highly recommend it. He writes this, and I'm just gonna have like three slides, just a little riff, a little run that I think is good. He says, in the chronic problem of human beings' felt experience, our experience of distance from God, God isn't usually the culprit. Our awareness of God is the problem. He goes on, so many people live without a sense of God's presence throughout the day. We talk about his absence 
as if it's this great question of theodicy, this great question of why does God allow evil in the world? We talk about his absence as if it's a great accusation against God in some way. That's what, I, that's what he means. But could it be that we're the ones who are absent, not God? And he says, we sit around sucked into our phones or TV or to-do lists, oblivious to the God who is around us, with us, in us, even more desirous than we are for relationship. And then he says this, I put it in yellow because I really want you to catch it, I think it's a really good statement. In the end, your life is no more than the sum of what you gave your attention to. Now think about that. In the end, it's really true when you think about it, in the end, your life is nothing more than the sum of what you paid attention to. That's why we see in Luke, all through Luke, Jesus having a rhythm in his life of getting away to a quiet, solitary place so that he, he could be without the kingdom of noise, all the distractions, and that he could pay attention to his heavenly father. We see that a lot. We saw it in the last chapter, chapter five, verse 16. It's just a throwaway sentence, really, but it, Luke says this. He says, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places, solitary places, and prayed. Now, it's just a little throwaway sentence you might have just read on when you were reading it, but it's pregnant with meaning because it's, what he's saying is that Jesus often, I'm not gonna write about all these things, but let me just tell you, often he withdrew to these solitary places, these lonely places, and he prayed. In fact, we're reading the story, and we ended at verse 11 where the Pharisees were furious. The very next verse, verse 12, Luke writes this. He says, one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. And you can read all through Luke, and you'll discover that no less than nine times does Luke talk about Jesus getting away, a rhythm to his life. He got away to pray, to be alone, to spend time, to pay attention to God. He had a solitary, quiet place wherever he went that he went to be with God. Do you? Do you, does a solitary, when I say solitary, quiet place, does a place in your life come to mind? Maybe a, a nook in your house somewhere? A, a chair by the window? The window by the trees outside, maybe? Or maybe a quiet place downstairs, a comfortable chair, Maybe some chaos is upstairs and you've got somebody watching, trading off with each other while you're downstairs in a quiet, comfortable chair in the solitude and the quiet. Or maybe it's a favorite spot on the deck. And maybe it's a, a time where you, you bring some coffee. You bring a Bible. Maybe you bring your workbook on Luke because there's some really good questions in there and it helps you write some things and all that. Maybe you're just sort of processing, you're, you're, you're pouring out your heart to God on things that your cares and concerns in life, you're processing things with God that are going on in your life, you're asking God to do some things in your life, you're asking God to do some things in the lives of, of those you love, you're maybe praising God for who he says he is in the Bible somewhere, or you're meditating on that, you're maybe not saying anything, but you're just meditating, thinking about those things, and Maybe you're reminding yourself of what, who God says you are in Jesus. 
And maybe you're confessing some ways that you haven't been living into that truth. Or, or just maybe you're just sitting there, consciously conscious that you're present with God. You're just paying attention. You're aware that God is with you. That, well, it's what the Spirit, what the Bible says, that the Spirit is in you, in your body. Your body is a temple of the Spirit who is in you, it says. That God is with you, he is in you, and you're just, you're just getting away from the kingdom of noise so that you can think about that for a minute. You can pay attention to that in a minute. And maybe you're sort of listening to the Spirit impressing things on you, speaking to you, and I don't mean audibly, but just saying some things in, in your mind, impressions on your mind. It's just a time to be with God, to pay attention to God. And sometimes they're gonna be better than others. Not every day is an awesome thing. You, you just might have had a, a racing mind that day. Your heart wasn't ready that day to really get calm with God. That's okay, you'll... You'll come back tomorrow. You'll come back another time. The important thing is to get a rhythm like Jesus had of just withdrawing often to get to a quiet, solitary place where you can pay attention to God. It's amazing to me as I read through Luke. I just thought this through a couple weeks ago, and it really is amazing to me that when I'm reading these stories of stuff Jesus does and things that Jesus says and this Jesus that I'm reading about, this real person who lived and the real person that I believe is God and that I believe rose from the dead and has ascended to heaven, and that, that, that Jesus is who I'm talking to right now. I mean, it's weird to think that this person 2,000 years ago is somebody right now in this moment today I'm with and can talk to and to, to, to be aware of him maybe speaking to me in some ways by his spirit. It's weird to think that, but that's exactly what it is when you get away with him, when you pay attention. Whatever it is that is stealing your attention away from those times, it is not worth it. You're falling for the tumbler trick because Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you restoration, and you will find restoration for your souls because I am Lord of rest. I am Lord of restoration. I am Lord of Sabbath. I am Lord of shalom. I am Lord of peace. Amen. Let's stand to receive God's blessing. It's an Old Testament book called Numbers, chapter six, verse 24. It's a great blessing, and I'm gonna have it be our blessing today. May God, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face toward you and give you peace, give you shalom, give you rest. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us today. Have a great week.